everyone is suspicious of everyone else. Uh, people are suspicious of doctors. Doctors are suspicious of patients. Uh, everybody's suspicious of everybody. The problem is getting worse, and particularly with regard to the diversion of these drugs into the illicit market and the shift and transition of uh, originally uh, people who were using the drugs medically into the illicit market, you know, also. And that problem continues to get worse. And the way I think of it is that we have uh, sort of the goal of safe and effective uh, pain management. Well, most of our you know agents that are safe aren't necessarily that effective, and then those that are the most effective maybe are not as as safe as we want. So we're always balancing these these two areas. I think it's very common that people with pain, particularly chronic pain, will turn to cannabis as an alternative to other things. Hello and welcome. This is the January 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. You are all familiar with the epidemic of opioid addiction and death by overdose that is going on in the United States. We know that it affects specific populations and regions more than others. But the dramatic epidemic has obscured the fact that millions of people suffer from pain and need to be treated. We started the project of this section with the premises that the management of the epidemic threatens to disenfranchise the access to pain care for those who need pain relief. We therefore dedicated the special section to the need of pain care and its availability worldwide in order to attract the public attention to both sides of the problem, treating those who need opioids and preventing opioids to be diverted towards people who will suffer from taking them. I have decomposed the problem in four chapters. First, what are the needs of opioid treatments? Is there an evidence-based response? Second, what is the availability of opioid therapy? Third, what are the challenges of striking a reasonable balance between the needs of patients in pain and the prevention of opioid-related harms? And finally, is cannabis a reasonable alternative to opioids in pain management? My interviewees are Richard Bonney. He was a chair of the National Academy of Science report entitled Pain Management and the Opioid Epidemic. It was published in 2017. Mark Rothstein is an associate editor of AJPH who, with associate editor Dan Fox, prepared the special section. Mark Schumacher, a clinician and anesthesiologist at the University of California, San Francisco, and also an author of the National Academy of Science report and Daniel Carr, who is with the Program of Pain Research, Education, and Policy at Tufts University. I am Alfredo Morabia, the Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are December 9th, 2018. Chapter 1, 
the needs I'm reaching out to Mark Rothstein. And I want to discuss with you the dilemma that uh, we are facing. Uh, there, there is uh, a need for pain management. We know that. I mean, it's been ongoing since 1990. But there is also this spillover effect, the fact that uh, on the other hand, there is a opioid uh, epidemic, uh, opioid consumption epidemic. So, uh, so tell me, what are the challenges here? I think you've identified the main one from my standpoint, and that is how do we continue to provide effective pain management to large numbers of people with diverse kinds of pain at the same time that we still have a major problem uh, with opioid use disorder and you know, 70,000 people dying last year of overdoses. And sometimes the fixes uh, make it even even worse in, in one way or another. Can you give me an example? Sure. Um, well, one of the ways that um, we have attempted to get a handle on the problem of uh, opioid use disorder is to limit to seven days the supply of opioids that individuals with prescriptions can have. And in many places, that has been applied to cancer patients um, who don't have any way of getting at their in sort of homebound uh, recovery or treatment. They don't have any transportation to the pharmacy where they have to go in person to pick up their prescription. It just, you know, it, it seems uh, not very well calculated. And also, I, I think in cases that I've uh, become familiar with, it, it, it's it's cruel. And we need to get a handle on the opioid problem. There's no question about that. But we have to do so in a way that... Um, you know, is uh, compassionate and respectful of people who are in a lot of distress. Let's now turn to Dr. Mark Schumacher to have the clinician opinion on the role of opioids in the management of pain. So from your daily clinical perspective, would you say that the needs in terms of pain management are covered for the patients you see? Uh, <laughs> well, a bit of a loaded question. I, I think that we can do much better. Uh, I think we're, we're very limited in terms of our, our treatment choices. And I think that uh, what's underlying that really is our fairly limited understanding of chronic pain. Uh, I think that's really a foundational uh, challenge that we have. And for these people with chronic pain, uh, uh, do you make a difference between people who have cancer pain and people who have different type of pain? Sure. I think part of the, the, the challenge in the past has been that somehow chronic pain is as if it's one more day of acute pain. And I think we're learning that that's not the case at all. And so trying to actually develop a, a better science around mechanisms, whether it's driving from a certain type of cancer pain or, the, say, the therapies from uh, cancer treatment, chemotherapy, it turns out that 
each of these are probably generating a unique set of challenges to the nervous system. And so currently, what, what is the role, the place of the opioids in uh, managing chronic pain? In general, opioid tolerance is, is one of the major limitations for continuous use of opioids over months or years, for sure. And uh, the thing is, is that we do know there's always exceptions. There's always the patient that uh, may have been on an opioid uh, for months, if not years, and continue to get benefit and uh, relatively uh, minimal risk for them. However, uh, those are generally the exception rather than the rule. And we know uh, in the general population, as we've seen, that we can expect that the effectiveness of analgesics like that are uh, driven by opioids will lose their potency over time. And of course, physicians or healthcare providers are attempting to recapitulate, kind of uh, see that same initial analgesic effect by increasing the dose. And unfortunately, as there's a limit to that, and uh, some patients have experienced very, very high doses, which puts them at, at greater and greater risk of overdose and death. I see. But so opioids work perfectly for acute pain then? Well, they have their own, uh, you know, uh, challenges, I would have to say. they For the general population, I think they remain to be a, a very powerful agent, but not all people can tolerate opioids. They can certainly induce nausea and vomiting, itching, uh, they can cause certainly changes in cognition and all of that. So uh, there's no perfect analgesic out there. In this first chapter, we discussed the need and role of opioids. In Chapter 2, let's reach out to Richard Boney to consider their availability for those who need them. But so, Richard, explain to me how those two issues are connected, because on one side we have people who suffer from pain, need treatment, and on the other hand we have people who get addicted uh, with opioids and, um, and, and, kind of, and some novel forms that are now on the market. So are these the same populations or are they a different population? How are those two connected? What happened in, in that gives us the current uh, uh, challenges that we now face is that there were obviously new formulations of, of, of opioids that were, uh, you know, put on the market um, in the 19, uh, you know, late in the early 1990s. Um, and uh, they were heavily promoted. Um, and, uh, at least I think, uh, change the, the, the patterns of prescribing because of the perception that these drugs could be useful, uh, for indications that previously opioids had not really been used for, uh, and particularly the treatment of, uh, of various types of chronic pain. Um, and so, uh, when one looks at the, 
uh, uh, the, the rate of prescriptions, the number of prescriptions, I mean, in a very short period of time, beginning in, in 1999, in terms of the data that I've seen, and then up to, you know, about 2010, over a, roughly a 10-year period, the prescriptions uh, for opioids uh, quadrupled. Uh, that obviously increased the kind of uh, the, the endemic, the, the uh, uh, number of people who were using the drugs initially prescribed uh, uh, you know, for uh, medical purposes, that obviously the risk there was in, in uh, risk of addiction in in those contexts, and uh, as pe- as people uh, became addicted, uh, also then the dynamics uh, begin to interact with uh, the illicit market, and people, uh, as maybe the uh, the access uh, uh, through prescribing is tightened because they become increasingly dependent, they go to the illicit market, and we saw the evidence of that happen uh, with a startling increase in the number of uh, of, of heroin related deaths, and then. Uh, uh, fentanyl uh, coming along behind it, uh, beginning, as I said, in roughly around 2011. And that's just been a stark uh, uh, increase in, in, in deaths there. situation gets complicated. If we follow what my interviewees tell me, there is a need for pain treatment, but opioids are not necessarily the best drugs to manage pain, in particular pain that is not caused by cancer. Still, opioids have been so much prescribed that scores of people have become addicted who are now buying them on the illegal market for their addictive properties, not for their painkiller properties. Do we have a strategy in place to break this vicious circle? First, I asked Dr. Schumacher if we have a pain management strategy. So, so you've been experiencing this whole epidemic. I mean, the, the, the whole phenomenon of increased prescription of opioids since 1990, you, you've been going through all that. Until that's, now. That's exactly right. And so, would you say what you're telling me is that you think now we need to look at pain management uh, starting at square one? We have to put everything back on the table and reconsider the whole problem differently. Uh, I, I think that's fair. I think that we've tended that to think that uh, pain management in general was something that was just as, maybe as simple as writing prescription uh, for an opioid in the past, and that's clearly not the case. Uh, pain, uh, we know a lot more about acute pain. We know very little about chronic pain from whether it's a disease process, from post-surgical trauma, chemical-induced. And so uh, I, I think that uh, it's going to really require uh, a, a different approach. We cannot train up enough pain specialists. I mean, there's only several thousand sort of board-certified pain physicians per se. Uh, we're really talking about training up as our, our medical students and undergraduates and developing what I would call sort of pain management competencies in these areas. And I think ultimately it, it may really become a requirement. 
So from a clinical perspective, we are back to and still at square one. I then ask Mark Rostin what the situation was for the more general strategy. At this stage, do we have a strategy to, to solve this uh, dilemma? Well, I wish we did. Uh, we have a variety of strategies, and um, some of them are more popular, uh, more politically uh, feasible than others. Um, one of the things that we all realize is that in in many respects the opioid crisis is you know the symptom of a larger more complex problem and and that is sometimes been referred to as the problem of despair in certain communities and in certain rural areas and in Appalachia which I'm familiar with here in Kentucky um, the social conditions really give rise to this kind of um, systematic problem throughout their society. It's no coincidence that the lowest income states in the country have the highest percentage of opioid use disorder. And um, on the other hand, the, the um, highest income states have the lowest percentage of opioid use disorder. So, you know, it's to get a, a, a long range handle on this, we need to address, you know, poverty and education and environmental degradation and all sorts of other problems. And um, but while we're doing that in the short run, we, we need to uh, try to get a handle on the pain management side of things as well as the um, treatment side for uh, opioid use disorder? Well, we have a lot to do to even start impacting the opioid crisis. I could not resist asking Richard Borney a more personal question. Are you optimistic? Um, well, that actually is a very uh, challenging question. Um, I think... When we completed the uh, the report, uh, which was I issued in in 2017, um, uh, I think our our uh, our uh, statements at that time were that um, that this is obviously a, an extremely challenging problem um, that uh, is only getting worse, right? And that it took obviously these many years that we're talking about. To get to the point that it was, I think we were using 2015 data actually when the report came out in, in, in 2017. Um, uh, and at that point, I think the, the number was something like, uh, just one of the indicators was that there were 90 deaths, uh, every day, uh, due to, uh, um, uh, an overdose with opioids. Um, and our perception was, that all the indicators were that this problem was only going to get worse before it got better, got better. And indeed, that's exactly what has happened. And I think all of the, the uh, uh, experts, uh, you know, believe that we, you know, we haven't actually hit that, you know, that uh, stabilizing point yet. Uh, and, and now we have, if I think the 2017 data indicate that there are about 175 uh, 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 opioid related deaths uh, on a daily basis. 
I suppose that we, uh, that eventually we will get control of this. I, I just think it's going to take a very, very long time with a lot of suffering of a lot of people, you know, in between. And in particular, also because we've tried to maintain access uh, to pain management, even while we're trying to get the opioid epidemic under control, you know, we still need to to provide appropriate, uh, you know, a- access to uh, uh, to prescribe drugs uh, for people who need them because of their pain. And so that, you know, that is going to continue to be a challenge, I think, for everyone. control the crisis, but it will take a very long time. So what are the alternatives available right now? In Chapter 4, I discuss with Dan Carr why he believes that cannabis, which appears to be a popular alternative, is not ready for prime time. And what do we know about the reaction of the patient themselves? You know, how prevalent is it that people with pain turn to cannabis and use it? I think it's very common that people with pain, particularly chronic pain, will turn to cannabis as an alternative to other things. There has been a general approach to decrease accessibility and availability to opioids, even as legitimate medical products. So we are creating a group of people who were told that uh, there should be no problem maintaining chronically on opioids for their pain, who are now being discontinued or tapered, in some cases involuntarily. So in this rapidly changing climate, it's not a surprise that some patients will turn to cannabis as an alternative. Yeah, but Dan, you said, you didn't say some, you said it's very common. So if cannabis doesn't work, how can we explain its success uh, within the public among patients? Well, I didn't say it doesn't work. What I said is that if one looks at the population-based analyses, syntheses of the literature, uh, one finds that it's a very weak effect, and it does not always differentiate from placebo. Yeah, but is this different from any other uh, psychotropic drug, etc.? I mean, do you want to get rid of any placebo effect? How many drugs will we keep on the market? You, you raise a great question, which if I interpret your question, Alfredo, it's the, what do you do with something that has a borderline effect, in this case a borderline effect versus placebo for use in chronic pain? What do you do with that if you have individuals who seem to benefit a great deal, and in the case series you cannot extricate how much is placebo response or not? So. Yeah, and also because, you know, when we're talking about an alternative, people would think immediately that uh, the risk associated with the placebos are much uh, smaller than those associated with being addicted to opioids. So between the two, why wouldn't we uh, tolerate uh, the consumption of cannabis if it actually reduces the access or the the need to uh, consume opioids? Well, I think that the answer to your question, again, goes to 
what, how can one estimate on a population level the impact of policy, which would be to legalize uh, and render even over-the-counter for recreational use cannabinoids? How, how do you weigh that population-wise versus the fact that the available literature does not show an impressive effect? It shows a, a very weak effect in aggregates of populations. Oh boy, at the end of this exercise, it appears that the situation is much more complex than I would have imagined when we took the initiative of the section. Not only are the two problems of pain management and opioid addiction extremely intricate, to the point that an apparently beneficial action on one can impact the other one negatively, but there is no clear solution either. The situation has grown out of control. There is little or no evidence to support alternative approaches. And the possible solutions are years away from even being implemented. We think that if we control the access to opioids, we can control addiction. But we don't even know how to treat people with pain. Training of physicians is wanting. And isolating people who may benefit from opioids from those that will be harmed is currently impossible. Cannabis appears to be a popular alternative, but we know very little about it because quality research on the topic is not sufficiently supported. In my view, there are three priorities. Training more doctors competent in pain management so that the need of patients are covered with the most parsimonious use of opioids. Rethinking the approach to pain on the basis of the last 30 years of massive, uncontrolled experiment and harnessing the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, which has been a major player in that failed experiment. And finally, support large-scale quality research on the pain-relieving aspect of cannabis. Access to ultra-potent forms of cannabis becoming easy in legalizing states, we should know what lies ahead before a cannabis crisis comes on top of the opioid crisis. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of that podcast. Francis Jacob, as usual, composed the music. He tried not to aggravate the already dramatic tone of this pod. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on Stitcher. That's it. Thank you for listening.